Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile 105 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Our guest this week, Kelsey Pontius, entered this month's Houston Marathon with a personal best marathon time of two hours and 44 minutes, good enough to earn her a spot in the 2020 Olympic trials in Atlanta. Kelsey rose to the challenge of the new, more difficult standards for 2024 and claimed her spot again with a huge 10-minute PR at Houston. In addition to being a 234 marathoner, Kelsey is a practicing sports dietitian who provides us plenty of tremendous advice for fueling our performance. Before we get into this episode, let me briefly thank our supporters who make these interviews possible. First, Run In, the Upstate's running specialist in Greenville at Cleveland Park, online at runin.com, and now across from the clock tower in downtown Simpsonville. Next, the region's premier running publication, Pace Magazine, has its winter edition available in stores now. And I'm super excited about a piece I'm writing for the spring issue celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Boston Marathon's famous Duel in the Sun. And what better place to read Pace than do South Coffee Roasters at Hampton Station? Check out the race calendar and numerous fantastic articles while you enjoy a hot cup of responsibly sourced coffee with our guys Ryan and Benjamin. And maybe afterward, go grab a taco or throw an axe at one of their eclectic Hampton Station neighbors. As always, you can use the code SFPOD for 15% off your online purchase at DoSouthCoffee.com. Without further delay, here's Kelsey Pontius and mile 105 of Seconds Flat. This is the Second Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Jones. Oh, my gosh. Kelsey, welcome in. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Travis. So you are among the first handful of women to hit the more stringent Olympic trials marathon qualifying standard for 2024. How are you feeling? Good. I wasn't expecting to be in these shoes so early, but um, I'm very excited about it. And I'm even more excited to see um, how, how both men and women's field develops, but especially like the women, how they kind of handle this, this new standard. Cause I, I have a feeling they're going to knock it down. Yeah. So what do you think about that? We got a tighter standard at two thirty-seven, down from two hours and 45 minutes and, and what it means for us women's marathoning. You know, I think it being someone that just barely got under the standard when it was 245, um, my experience of running 245 was really awesome. And I felt like when they changed the standard, a lot of women were going to rise to the occasion. Um, just knowing the pack of women that I qualified with, there was nothing, there was nothing like 
running in a big pack of women for 26.2 miles. Um, the first time I qualified and something just kind of told me, like, even though it was a big jump that a lot of those women that qualified last time and even new people coming into the distance would respond really well to it just because I don't think I've ever had as much fun or felt as much energy as qualifying with the 245 women. So I'm like, they'll respond. They'll be okay. Yeah. I'm on the same page. A hundred percent. I think that it, it will reduce the field to some degree, but it helps bring the best out of people too. People rise to the occasion, right? And now you had a, a new target to aim for and, and look what happened for you. So let's go ahead and dive into Houston then. First, so we've started a segment reviewing the previous week of training, but since I suspect you had some time off post Houston, could you walk us through your final week leading up to the race? Yeah, it was just a normal standard like marathon preparation. Um, we always have this um, marathon workout a few days out. I think it's a Steve Jones ones. I'm coached by Matt Hensley, who has been coached by Jonesy for a long time. And so I think he borrows it from Jonesy and it's three by five minutes. I think the best part is I finally have learned to not overthink it. Um, that nothing you do in that, that, um, short little workout really matters. But what I did do is I went to my favorite part, um, to run a five minute loop in Jacksonville and I did it there. Um, and then the rest of the week was just really, really light and preparing to travel. I was pretty nervous to travel because of COVID. Um, so I kind of was in lockdown the last few weeks of not going a lot of places, especially living in Florida. Um, sorry for any Floridians listening, but, but yeah, I think that it was just kind of a standard thing and just mileage way back and everything real slow and easy, except for that one workout. And then I think I might've done like some strides sometime in the week, but that was really it. Yeah. So you called it standard and normal, but this is a place where so many of us get sufficiently freaked out in the taper phase. So it's great to hear an example from a final week that ends in success and maybe more than the specifics then of the work you did, the mental framework, the, the mental place that you were in, because it seems at least on the surface, you took those final days very much in stride as this is the lead up and I'm ready to race, but talk a little bit about your mental space. Yeah. I, uh, marathon nerves are unlike any other nerves, I think. And I don't know what about it for the marathon kind of makes me more nervous. I think it's that the race is so long and then I had never really mastered the last 10 K of a, a marathon before. So like that particularly, I think is like the thing that, that really weighs heavily on me. Um, so I'll be honest, the week of, I was pretty squirrely. Um, there were a lot of scenarios that my coach and I, and my husband had kind of thrown out because it was a last minute decision to switch my half to a full. And then I wasn't, um, I wasn't considered an elite at Houston. So it had been on the fence, whether I'd have my own personal fluids and I'm a, I'm a sports dietitian. So I think that's something that like, it was really important to me that I had access to those. And then we had the wind variable and I raced in Atlanta when it was really windy. I've raced, um, here in gate river run where, and it's been really windy. So I, I'm well aware of like the direction that that can have on your performance. Um, 
So I was a little bit nervous. And then we even threw out that with it being a last minute change, I was a little bit under trained because we were planning on doing a half and we changed it. So I, I was a little bit nervous at the back half of the race. So my husband was watching the win for me all week. He finally was like, okay, this is now my job to watch it for you. And um, he was really good at being realistic about like the direction that I was going and like how it match up to the course and if we, it didn't change and that kind of thing. So I think that that was kind of helpful for him to say, okay, like let's have a real conversation about this. Yes, it's not a point to point race. You're going to have a headwind. You're going to have a tailwind at some points. And I think that going into the race, um, it kind of helped me know where to tuck in and where to like put more energy towards tucking in versus, well, once you turn, you can feel you have a tailwind. And so um, when to just, you know, run and do what you do. So I think that him like helping me with a wind was a really big thing mentally. And then running my own business too. Um, I took a normal load of clients, but one thing that I did make sure is that I wasn't like overbooking myself. And in January being a dietitian, that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine. I love that you handed off that weather duty to someone that you could trust but just one less thing for you to think about because that one, people will just be updating that app constantly leading up to race day. Uh, let's unpack a couple things that you touched on there. The first is the switch, the late switch from half marathon to marathon. When did you make that decision? We, I did half marathon champs in December and I had done um, Philly half in September and it was really warm to that day. And then, um, I got married in October and then in December was like my next chance to race. And I had a really good at a good day at, um, us champs. I, I placed 18th and, um, I ran one fourteen, And so that was about a 72nd PR. And so Matt, my coach was kind of like, okay, like we'll get ready for Houston. And I threw out the idea. I was like, I'm not necessarily sold on this, but would it be crazy to see if I could change my entry to a full, like I'm very healthy right now. I don't feel burnout. Um, we're kind of Matt's approach is very conservative. And so I felt like I had a, a good race left in me. And, um, so we went back and forth for a few days and we kind of landed at historically I ran well under trained and um we didn't have anything to lose because of the next marathon attempt to try to qualify wouldn't be until like june or even um even possibly the winter and so i haven't ran that many marathons i think that was my fifth and he was like either way it would be a good thing for you to do developmentally and if it's a tough day or if you have a rough day like you can race for place which at a, a race like houston that's gonna help you get into other races and and I wasn't an elite, so he was like, maybe you place well and they'll consider you next time for that. Yeah, you're such a poster child for our uh, belief that we have harped on here so many times about being a little undertrained is so much better than being a little overtrained. Here is case in point. And yeah, I, I know the way Matt coaches, and I think it allows for that success where you had. Uh, I guess that would have been about six weeks, right, from Hardyville, beautiful Hardyville, South Carolina, for the for the half champs to Houston. You said that the next attempt possibly was maybe going to be June. Were you looking at grandmas, maybe? 
Yes, I had um, talked to grandmas and already gotten in. And so, and but grandmas, like historically, I guess the last like two or three years, I haven't gone, but it has been a little bit warmer than mm-hmm. usual, which isn't anything I'm not used to. But that was another thing, um, knowing that Houston might have a little bit cooler temperatures. And so just kind of trying to spin marathon bullets wisely. <laughs> Oh, it's that's spot on. Yeah. You know, Houston and say CIM in the winter are much more likely to get you that good weather than June anywhere in the United States. Although, as you said, going from Jacksonville to Duluth, Minnesota, it's, it's definitely going to be better than what you were training in. You talked about not knowing where you'd sit with the elite field. So let's use that point to pivot to your nutrition for the race and Actually, first, let's back up since we talked about your training the week of. Uh, what did the taper week nutrition look like here for you? Yeah, so I feel like I think, too, that's why it's it's really useful to get experience racing, because even having textbook knowledge, Travis, like I think that if you don't if you don't get to find what version of the textbook knowledge or where on the spectrum you land, if you're not racing, then you don't get to really understand. So I think the benefit of like racing a little bit more than what I'm used to in the fall, I got to play around with different variables, at least for the half too. So I, and this is super, super standard, um, three days out, I actually like to get a certain amount of carbohydrates per, I don't know why in school they teach it as to everything on the metric system, even I though in the, I'm like, why we don't use it. But anyway, um, I have, I had practiced like anywhere between five to seven grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight. And this is, this year is the first time I've been a dietitian since, um, 2000, 2016, but this is the first year that like, I really am like, okay, with traveling, weird things happen. You get nervous, your appetite's down. I practice like counting this out for myself. And with travel was the big thing that I felt like in other races, I'd gotten behind on, on carbs or nerves or whatever, eating out and not wanting to overeat, um, because afraid to get a stomach ache. And so I was a little bit more diligent with eating as many meals as I could, where I could like know how many grams of carbs I was having. And then, um, if I had to eat out, do the best that I, that I could do. And so I started that about three days out, which is what I recommend for, for my clients with marathons, but it was a good experience for me to like, okay, you think, you know what you're doing and and you do know, but maybe, um, maybe like nickel and diamond and, um, make sure that you're getting enough. And that was really valuable because I found that I ended up probably having one more extra snack doing it that way than what I would have, if I would have just gone by feel, which is what I normally do. So then how did the fueling play out during the race? Like on course, you mean? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So fortunately I did get bottles, um, which I just think it's easier to tolerate liquids than, than gels by all means. I've done it with gels plenty of times and, and, um, you just have to practice it that way. But I was really confident with fluids because that's what at Philadelphia and, um, in Hardyville that I had, I had used. And so every 5k they had a, a table of fluids. And so, I put one third of Mortant, um, Mortant, is it, yeah, 320 on, um, on the tables. Um, so one third is like what, like 106 calories per table. And, um, 
put it six ounces of fluid in it. So every 5k, I was getting about hundred calories, about 25 grams of carbs. So that was really helpful. I didn't miss any bottles, which is really fortunate. And it worked really well for me. The only thing that I have complaint wise is most of the race they had, there's two lanes of traffic and they had us racing in the left lane and the woman's bottles were on the right lane. And I kid you not, like my mile marker started clicking off earlier and I was like, I've ran these tangents, what's happening? And then um, it wasn't until like a day after I was like, oh yeah, the fluids for the women were on the right side of the road. So every time I like had to run across and then, um, and then catch my group and like make a weird diagonal back to them. To translate this for the person who doesn't get the bottle service on course and maybe has to take the gels, the average gel is about the same amount of calories as what you were getting in there. Now, I assume you're sipping that over a period of time after the aid station, but that was roughly equivalent to taking a gel every 5K then, right? Yeah. And I really like to go by time because we're all running different paces and stuff like that. Um, so it, I mean, for me, what, that's like 18 to 19 minutes. Yeah. 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 And so, um, normally, I mean, that's like the people that will say I take a gel. I, I don't know why this is such a thing with marathoners, but every five miles or every six miles. And I think that just thinking about like the time on feet and how many grams of carbs and most of us, you know, should fall anywhere between 60 to 90 grams per hour. So just thinking about it in a marathon, at least um, just thinking about it that way and then practicing it that way. Um, because on race day, I knew that my stomach would be okay um, unless something crazy happened. Um, and in marathons, crazy things do happen, but every, you know, every 5k getting down hundred calories. Yeah, that's really great stuff, Kelsey. Let's put a pin in the carb discussion for a minute because I want to come back to that, but I'd love to first let you have the opportunity to share the overall Houston experience. Uh, this is an incredible day for you. So what went right? What went wrong? What did you learn? Just any of the lessons from, from a great day in Houston, Texas? Yeah. It, have you ever raced it? It's such a fun place. I have not. I, I have been to Austin for some races, but I've never even been to Houston. Yeah. So early race start, 7 a.m., which isn't too crazy, but it was very dark, like getting there and everything. It was cold. It was like 30 degrees, which again, I put something on my Instagram story about layering up for 30 degrees in Florida and I got a lot of hate. So like <laughs> yeah. all these messages about how they ran in shorts and tank tops and 16 degrees. And I was like, well, oh, okay, got it. I'm not tough. But anyway, it was very cold for me. So, um, I had, my husband had brought like a lot of throwaway stuff for me, which was clutch. And it's interesting because the half and the full start together. And so starting the race, I knew I'd be in the, a headwind, but we had, you know, deducted that there'd be so many people starting in the half and the full that it really wouldn't matter. Um, I tripped at the start line of the trials. And so like now my thought process starting any race is pick up your feet, pick up your feet. And sure enough, somebody like face planted into the cobblestone beside me. So I was very happy. It wasn't me. Um, and also felt bad for them, but I hadn't started. I raced 10 K's and halves all season. And so that marathon, it's weird to settle into. I felt like I hadn't done much work at that like pace before. So 
there's so much adrenaline. It feels slow. The first like three or four miles of a marathon. Um, actually that was something that Matt told me. He's like, it's going to feel really weird probably. Um, and he was right. I thought it felt really weird. I was trying to figure out who would be the girls going for this standard early on. So I could like latch on to people, but I couldn't really at that point, it was just too early. And so, um, yeah, I kind of, it kind of took me a little bit to settle in and kind of feel like what the right effort was. And then, um, eventually I knew I had like a crosswind. It got a lot easier turning out of that headwind and within like, I would say by mile eight, I had a really good pack established and we were rolling a little bit quicker than what I had thought. Um, but I knew too, like having a tailwind that it was okay to see some quicker splits. It was probably the same effort. Um, so we, I got locked in at like 550, 555 pace. And I had a group of, there's like two or three other women and then, um, men. And so I was thinking this is perfect for the wind. So we were going a little quicker and I was trying to run around like six minute pace. And then we hit a headwind and I was like, okay, great. They'll slow down because we've been rolling a little quicker. It's a headwind. Everybody will slow down. And they didn't. So I contemplated like slowing down a little bit. But through getting my bottles, I could see what was behind me um, every time I grabbed a bottle. Um, so I realized there wasn't anybody running really behind me. So I was like, what's that might be even harder than running 550s, 555s is running six minute pace alone. So I just decided to stay with me with them. And something that Matt had said some to me was like to have fun and to not overthink it, like make the decision where you're, you're having the most fun and smile a lot. And, um, so staying with the group seemed like a lot more fun than running alone in a headwind. So I decided to stay and around 17 to 18 miles, those were the last miles into the headwind. It started getting really tough, but then we turned and I'm sure you've had this experience. You don't realize how much you're fighting the wind until like you have a tailwind. And that, that happened. And the girls that I was with like took off. I had never seen anything like it. They started running like five forties. And so I went with them for a few miles and then I never ran a back half of a race. Well, so after like two or three of those miles, I was like, okay, I don't want to fall apart the last five K. So I kind of slowed down and and was really impressed by them. And that's kind of my answer too. When you asked me like, what do you think will happen with the women? Women are really fast right now. Um, they were definitely like the ones in the front of our pace groups. Like I was thinking at one point, I'm like, when are these men going to get in front? <laughs> and it was two girls that like were in front of the pack all day and then they took off super quick. And so it was super fun to share kind of faster miles with them and just see how, how talented and strong they were. Um, and also be a little, a little hesitant to do that myself that late in the race with, with still a 5k to go, which doesn't sound like a lot, but is painfully a lot. <laughs> and so, um, I kind of slowed down to like five fifty six minute pace, but, um, it was the best I'd ever ran the last 10k. So I was super excited about that. And the last mile, it didn't really feel real that I'd ran like underneath the standard time. So it was, I felt like I was dreaming. I felt like I was going to wake up at any moment. Like I, it was almost like I was finishing the race, like not, not knowing what to think. Uh, you're describing some of the feelings of a perfect day of racing, Kelsey. <laughs> yeah. I never, you know, I think I've had one other day in my whole life like that. And 
like you're almost confused in the last little bit. Cause I remember that one other experience, I remember feeling super confused of like, is this really happening? Yeah. When did you know you had the standard? Oh gosh. Um, I think I'm so scared of that last 5k just because I've never had it not be a death march to be honest. And so I did go through, I tried not to do math. My watch was off. I tried to just like be in the moment and not do too much math. Um, and how good is like mile 22 math anyway? Oh, it's, it's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did go through the 20 mile mark and I didn't know really how I felt at that point, but I went through at 157. And so I was like, for goodness sake, Kelsey, you can run a 40 minute 10 K. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I would say I, I more trusted it with probably at mile 24, just, okay, you can run two seven minute miles. Come on. And you've mentioned here a couple of times, the last 10 K has been a spot of some difficulty in the past. What do you think changed this time? Years and years of running, honestly, because like I said, I was a little bit undertrained. I'd done like one 20 mile run between Tramps and um, Houston. It was an 830 pace 20 mile run too. Um, so I I didn't couldn't really draw confidence from like that five or six weeks for like finishing the last 10K. But I think it was the years and years of training. And then I'm curious, I don't know this for sure, but I've been doing more consistent strength work. Um, in the last couple of years, I had a really bad injury between qualifying for the, the trials and then running the trials. So I've been pretty consistent with that and maybe even carb loading a little bit more intentionally. Um, I'm curious if that did, but I, I'm leaning mostly towards more years of those two to two and a half hour long runs. Yeah, that consistency over time maybe has uh, raised the ceiling to a point where you didn't need a ton of those to squeeze in between the half and your full. Since you brought the carbs back up again, let's, let's go back to that. I think you're such a great resource here because you're combining professional experience and expertise with practical performance applications of someone who's been successful out on the course. So I may have opened a Pandora's box on our last episode when I critiqued the concept of fasted training. In my experience and from the body of literature as I read it, it seems that glycogen depleted training for your long runs and hardest efforts can be more deleterious than it is beneficial. Uh, so what's your perspective here and what advice can you offer about fueling in training than not just on race day. Yeah, I was literally talking to a client about this today. I talk about fasted running every day for the, like most of the time, like I'm about ready, everybody listening, nutrition course coming 2022 in the fall because I have the same conversations every day. So we're going to make it a course. But to answer your question, like I think that not enough people put value on their everyday training because just how we were saying it, um, consistency over time is the most important thing. So while race day nutrition is important, I would rather crush my everyday nut um, nutrition that allows me to recover, that allows for performance adaptations, that allows you know, me to be consistent in my training and have and leverage the sessions because we only have one body and we're humans. We have limits of um, how much we can push ourselves, but nutrition really does like 
raise the ceiling. And so um, I think that, and there's other areas, not just nutrition. I think that about like a lot of things of, of how to just get more out of your body and just make the, the training that we can do, especially as people that have full-time jobs and, you know, are caring for families and stuff like that. You're getting the most because we all, nobody gets the 25th hour. Right. So I really, really value that now race day and taper nutrition, super important. But, um, to me, I would rather my clients get the most out of their training because that's what raises the bar. And then, you know, taper nutrition, race nutrition is so that you can get the max out of what you have on that day. But the nutrition in your training that helps you get to new levels. So with fasted running, it's research is it's research. Like you can find anything. If you Google it, you can find whatever perspective you want to find that there's research to it. I think it's knowing about how to sift through research and knowing, um, the quality and the level of it. Um, there was a really good article, um, not too long ago that, that people jumped on because, um, fat adapted training or fasting and stuff like that is definitely having a moment and people jumped on it really quickly. And it, it was good research indicating that there is a time and place for it. However, what I like to tell my clients is there, it's a very small number of the population. What we have to remember about research is it's a super controlled environment. So where I consider it for, I would say maybe not even one percent of my clients, but I have, I mean, I have a lot of clients, so I have used it before um, in some of my clients, but to just tell you a little bit about the demographic of these clients, they are elite athletes. Their daily nutrition is like exceptional, amazing. It's not every day. It's not hard efforts. It's not long runs. And so it's not even for the athletes that I have used it with, where there is some quality research, it's not even every day. And where I see it used um, incorrectly is people are trying to make it like, do you eat before you run or do you not eat? No, I heard that fasted training is good and they like do it too much. And then also if the athlete is injury prone, I don't do it just because I want them to have super available substrates to pull from so that there's not muscle breakdown and there's not this, um, it doesn't put them in this like catabolic state. And so, um, yeah, it's very, there is good research, but it's very specific in particular. And to be honest, 99.5% of my clients don't really meet the, the criteria where there's a really good reason for it. And even the ones that do, Rule number one, if you wake up and you're tired and you're hungry and you're feeling gassed, please eat. <laughs> that's fantastic. I like uh, the way you peel back at the nuance there. Yeah. Uh, th that's significant and it really reinforces what I see from, as you said, what most athletes need. Uh, we can find exceptions in any situation, of course. And right. uh, to, to add to that nuance, how do your protocols change, maybe specific to carbs, or this could be a more general answer though, based on the global volume that someone runs or the paces that he or she targets? Yeah. So for overall volume, um, I really like to think of it as the biggest thing that's changing is the overall caloric or energy needs. So they're needing just more calories overall. And so for most runners, I would say with carbohydrates, um, 
there's a few ways to calculate it out um, just to make it easy. And so people aren't writing down like formulas. Most of the time it's like 50 to 60% of their intake. I recommend coming from those carbohydrates and then taper week. Um, you know, you might even find that's even, we do it by um, kilos of body weight, but you might even look, if you looked at a whole nutrient profile of someone's diet, that it's even up to like 70%. So 50 to 60%, which really blows a lot of my clients' minds, especially um, kind of coming from this carbophobic age. And so to break that down, sometimes I really do have to break that down for people in terms of, of explaining like what that might look like per meal for them. Um, yeah. And even, you know, depending on, on how much they're training and everything, um, duration wise, you can do it. You can get as nitty gritty as breaking that down. Like I did talking about my taper to what's needed if you're not in a taper, but you're just training hard based on the hours that you're training. But I would say most athletes, endurance athletes specifically, at least 50 to 60% of their, their calories every day. And if they're training more and burning more then that's percentage wise, you can kind of live in there, but also increasing just overall calories. So that's going to inevitably change the, the amount of carbs. Um, now with, with, um, higher intensity things, the higher your heart rate is, the more you're tapping into your glycogen storage, your energy storages and your muscle and liver. And so you're going to use more percentage of carbohydrates opposed to being able to, to use fat as fuel. It's not a perfect using one versus another. There's a lot of energy pathways going on all at the same time. So not to get confused. I think that that's confusing. Like, am I using carbs or am I using fat? Um, it's a lot of pathways all at the same time. Um, but you're using a greater percentage of your carbohydrate stores, the higher your heart rate is, um, hence higher intensity things. Yeah. It felt there as you explained that the difference between an endurance athlete and just general society is so apparent in what you need to fuel for performance versus what we see in, as you said, a, I thought you put this beautifully carbophobic um, American or even Western society when fad diets are apparent all around us that say eliminate these things, they're bad for you. But when you're going out to train for a marathon, the answer may be very, very different totally different. I talk about like exercise versus performance all the time, because even like casual exercise, um, I made a post about this today, actually, that exercise, you know, I think endurance sports are so fun because I got into running because I was a college athlete and I just wanted to stay active. Um, so I think it can be tricky because um, people start doing running so simple. It's an easy thing to start. And so people started as exercise and then they develop goals and they decide it's fun. And then they have um, PR goals and sometimes they hire coaches and they buy a GPS watch and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden it turns into performance and um, they're expecting different outcomes. And so therefore, like other than just, you know, getting their heart rate up and staying healthy and bringing more movement to their lives. And so therefore their nutrition requirements are going to change if you want a different outcome of performance rather than just, you know, seeing if you could complete your first 5k. Kelsey, before we go any further here, where can people follow you so they can read these posts that you are putting out that are spot on and enlightening? Sports dietitian Kelsey on Instagram. And then I do have a private Facebook group. It's not super private. Ask to be in it and I'll let you in. Um, called Endurance Sports Nutrition. 
Wonderful. There you go, folks. You know where to follow now. Let's follow a similar line of thought for protein intake. Any recommendations about protein consumption, in particular, maybe when in relationship to after a workout, in relation to perhaps time of day? I've read a, a lot of literature about our um, seeming ineffectiveness in America at spreading out the protein intake throughout the day, what impact that has. And then a last thought is how that may change with age. As we age as athletes, how does the protein intake perhaps change as well? I, I just packed a whole bunch of stuff into one question there. I'm sorry. So I'll just let you go at it. Whatever thoughts you have on protein. Yeah, we got some new, fun, specific recommendations for protein. I can't remember, like one or two years ago. Um, so for the longest time, um, they thought that contact sports um, needed more protein than runners. Um, and that's what I learned in school too. I was I played college soccer. Um, and so I was really fascinated with the once I was learning about nutrition, I was like past that point of my life. And then running, they taught us, um, was less than some, a contact sport like soccer, but what they've came out with, um, especially with doing road racing and stuff like that, is that like the muscle, um, breakdown of pounding, um, they kind of established that the new guidelines were that of, um, protein intake of contact sports, like, you know, lacrosse, soccer, that kind of thing. So I've ever since that, that new research came out, um, I've been calculating out my client's protein needs to be anywhere kind of depending on what their training's like and what their goals are like, but anywhere from 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram. So not quite up. Everyone's like a gram per pound, right? Not quite that high, but, um, higher than the old recommendation was 0.8 to one gram per kilo of body weight um, for runners. Um, one thing that I do work with that I find really fascinating is if an athlete is injured, then we bump up the protein intake um, to help regenerate like new tissues and new structures in the body because you're trying to heal. So that can kind of change. So I gave you a really big window, but if I was to calculate out for someone that was like a runner, I would probably choose 1.5 grams per kilo of body weight for them. So there's more nitty gritty ways to do that calculation. But in terms of like where we're at in terms of timing of protein, so we also have more fun information on that because um, the window of opportunity was always like the sports nutrition go-to that you have to get X amount of protein after a workout. And what we know now, where I've kind of landed with my clients on that is that the overall daily protein intake matters the most. So what I just told you about getting enough protein um, during your day, that's what matters the most. And uh, I think that a lot of times, again, like I see athletes not, not, um, prioritizing their meals throughout the whole day, but they'll drink a supplement post-workout and be like, all right, my job here is done. I really encourage like, okay, at meals, at snacks, how much protein are we getting rather than saying I have to down a protein drink right after I get done running. Now, if we're doing kind of like, um, fasted workouts, if we're doing all of that, right, then you have to think after a workout, you do have more blood moving to those working muscles. So, you know, getting in some good recovery protein and carbs together. We know that carbs, um, kind of allow the protein to rebuild a little bit better acts as a transporter and vehicle actually. Um, so those two things together, I normally recommend those like after a harder workout or after a long, um, run when someone's been exercising, normally I say after 90 minutes, um, start considering some like well-timed um, recovery fuel, but 
I kind of get to more of the nutrient timing thing once people are doing really well with their meals. And um, once we can kind of cross that off, it's like, okay, now that we've got that, like let's leverage the nutrient timing and the recovery nutrition. To that point then, let's step back and simplify in a world where so many of us are so busy and there's plenty of people listening who have full-time jobs and families and so much else to to take care of. What are some of your best easy daily or weekly nutrition tips for runners that we can work into those busy lives we all have? I think first off, plan your meals ahead. Um, You don't have to spend all of your Sunday meal prepping, but at least have an idea. Cook once, try to eat more than once, at least two or three times. I know like someone's listening, they're like, you don't have six kids, do you? But definitely having an idea, it doesn't have to be like a super a super like outlined thing, but having an idea of what you're going to eat throughout the week. I like to talk to my clients, Travis, in terms of using this philosophy because it's so painfully simple um, called a performance plate. And I love this concept because number one, it trumps like any information about fad diets. And it really gets my clients to think about the function of foods rather than is this good or bad? So what a performance plate has on it is protein, carbohydrates, um, color. So antioxidants, fruits or vegetables, inevitably it's going to have some fat on it. A lot of times you don't have to make room for the fat. It's just there. And then including fluids. And so it's so, so simple without overthinking things. And, um, I like to explain it in terms of, of volume and intensity. So like on a hard training day, we're trying to, we always try to get like 25 to 30% of our plate is protein. And then the only thing that really changes dramatically is the ratio between fruits and vegetables to carbohydrates. So the more we move, the more carbohydrates we need. And it's stealing from fruits and vegetables on your plate if you have those three things. So if you're a hard training day, it might be 50 to 60% of your plate is being taken up by those potatoes, that rice and you're stealing room on your plate from fruits and vegetables versus um, where I am right now, coming back from a marathon, I've recovered now, you know, 10 days out or whatever, and not really training much. And so I'm still eating carbohydrates, but not near as many as I was in, in peak training. I'm eating more fruits and vegetables and that kind of thing because of less movement. That's brilliant. And <laughs> as you said, simple. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. People can work with that. I also feel like you have just enabled my winter diet. I have been crushing the crock pot like on maybe a Sunday, loading it up with what feels like enough servings to feed my entire building, but gets me through a few days then. And it's one less thing I have to think about on Monday and Tuesday, that meal's prepared and it's good and it's healthy and uh, it makes life a whole lot easier. Totally. I think that the more you can set yourself up, it doesn't have to be anything crazy that you're cooking. Love Shalane Flanagan's all of her books, but it doesn't have to be anything that you're crushing meals every night from those types of cookbooks. Um, it can be something like whatever it is that's going to work. I did a similar thing this week, but crock pot, those kinds of things, those types of tools, um, brilliant for like making yourself more consistent. 
Super. Two last quick ones here for you, Kelsey. One is I have like a rotating cadre of co-hosts on this program. And one is our good friend, physical therapist, Dr. Phil has a question for you. He wants to know any thoughts you have, any work you've done uh, with collagen supplementation, which has kind of become all the rage of late. And what thoughts do you have? Yeah. So the biggest thing to remember, I'm not anti-collagen supplements first and foremost, but the most important thing to remember about all supplements is um, their billion dollar, $200 billion industry to be specific. And um, so with collagen, what we do know is that our bodies make collagen, which Dr. Phil would totally know this. The biggest thing that that stimulates collagen growth that our bodies can make itself is vitamin C. And then um, zinc and copper also help support our own collagen growth. So I like to make sure in diets, okay, are we doing that? Also, collagen is found in food. So like broth, bone broths, um, eggs. Um, a lot of like higher protein foods. So eating a lot of vitamin C, eating foods that have collagen, eating foods that are rich in zinc and copper, a lot of times are my first go-tos. Now, um, I know this because I had a lower leg injury. There is some really good research that collagen supplementation um, before working that specific area. So before something like physical therapy, did have a positive um, impact on injury healing. Um, they did this for Achilles injuries and then like loading that Achilles right before. So there is some really fun research right now with it. Um, but as far as like, do, do all of my runners need collagen supplements? No, I wouldn't go there. Typically I'm looking at their diet and seeing um, how much nutrients around um, their diet helps support that healthy collagen growth. I do think that, um, and just because we don't have research doesn't like saying that we all need to be taking all the time doesn't necessarily mean that it won't one day be that. Anecdotally, when I was taking supplemental collagen because I was injured and we're desperate when we're injured, I did notice like my skin, my hair, all of that was like the best it's ever been. So <laughs> I, think, I think anecdotally, I'm like, okay, if this is happening on the outside, I'm curious like what's happening on the inside. So I'm excited to um, learn a little bit more. And there are specific injuries where specific supplementation has been seen to be um, successful. But again, like so many moving parts in that, like the proper physical therapy and are you eating well otherwise? Are you sleeping? All of these things. Yeah. So those positive side effects you saw, uh, perhaps like many other uh, benefits we see in our lives, first begin with appropriate diets, as you said, in this specific case, proper amounts of protein, proper amounts of vitamin C are the place to start, you would say, for seeing some of these benefits rather than just diving into, I'm buying another supplement. Yeah, because you have to think about it. It's, it's a super expensive supplement. It is, so, yeah. So many athletes are willing to do it. But if you think about it, how much it is per serving, like most of them are like anywhere between three or $4 per serving. So, I mean, sometimes people could blink, no big deal. But thinking about that, just as far as a supplement for the rest of your life, um, I always say, try to not start anything that you can't do forever. Certainly we get injured and that's a temporary thing, but um, whatever you start to keep those results, we want to do it for forever. 
Yeah. Hey, just because Drew Hunter's taken it on a 10-man elite video before a long run doesn't mean we all have to, but potentially it could be for you. He needs all the help he can get, though. Please keep that. (laughs) (laughs) That is well said. He has had quite a few injuries. Unlike Phil, who goes with the college in question, I'm going to bring you with the last question, something that's actually really hard hitting here, Kelsey. This is the biggest question. It's what the people want to know. I am not asking Kelsey the professional. I'm asking Kelsey the day after she goes big time PR at Houston and she's hungry and she deserves a break and just dietitian hat is thrown out the window. It's breakfast. I'm giving you three options. I want you to rank these for me in order. Oh gosh. Pancakes, waffles, French toast. What's it gonna be? Oh gosh. Um, Waffles, pancakes, French toast. This had been going really well until you went exact opposite order of me, but that's okay. I'll allow you to explain yourself. You're a waffle person. Yeah, but did you go, our, if you were the exact opposite order, our middles was the same. Our pancakes. That's fair, yes. In our hearts. Yes, I do love pancakes, but I'm a French toast guy. Okay. I think that I didn't ever get that growing up. And so maybe that's, it's the unfamiliarity, so. Okay. I'll let that go then. I'll give you time, um, much like your training consistency over time in experimenting with these breakfasts may change your opinion. Hey, Kelsey, you killed this. If the dietitian thing turns out to not be what you want to do, you may want to think about taking my job. <laughs> but um, I think that sometimes if someone was giving you like a curveball, like I think you could handle it where I would just get sassy and probably say something. So listeners like that though. Bring the sass, got it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. In all aspects of life. Kelsey, congratulations on a a big PR and Olympic trials, marathon qualifying time already. We've got like three years to prep for that. Super excited to see what you do. Are you going to be, uh, I guess I do have one more question, I'm sorry, getting back out for Gate River Run in March? Oh gosh, I normally do it. Um, we, I, it's a week early this year, which is the first is, Saturday. Yeah. I'm unprepared for that. And so I think we're more leaning towards um, some late March, early April races. So not decided, but maybe a cherry blossom or maybe, maybe a track, maybe I'll be a 30 year old person on an unattached race at a track. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Super fun. Cherry Blossom's a great race. I ask about Gate since it's your hometown and one of my all-time favorite races, but that sounds like a great schedule. So good luck. I, shoot, 2022 is already off to a heck of a start. I don't know how this can get much better, but good luck the rest of the year in your training. And thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Yeah, absolutely. That was so much fun. Thanks for having me.